Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you're a fan of the sci-fi show Star Trek, you'll know what it means to undertake the grueling Kobayashi Maru test. The fictional simulated training exercise was designed to see how cadets of the Starfleet Academy reacted to an extreme battle situation. In this scenario, participants are tasked with the rescue of a ship named the Kobayashi Maru, which had been crippled in a simulated battle. It was considered the ultimate test of decision-making and creative problem-solving under intense pressure. To successfully rescue the Kobayashi Maru would mean risking almost certain death, along with the likely destruction of your spaceship and crew. Failure to rescue the ship meant the Kobayashi Maru and her crew would be left to perish. Today, the pop culture reference has become a metaphor to describe seemingly no-win situations. Whether it's something as serious as life and death, or even if it's making a high-risk business decision, the Kobayashi Maru symbolizes what it means to continually adapt and be innovative in the face of adversity. Finding ourselves in unbeatable situations is something we all try to avoid, but sometimes there's nothing you can do to get out of the way. When a seemingly impossible challenge does present itself, it's often the ability to think beyond the conventional that tips the balance between failure and success. In 1983, the Kobayashi Maru no-win scenario unexpectedly became a very real and present danger for all those aboard in Air Canada, Boeing 767. Commercial airline pilots are, of course, well-trained in having to make emergency landings in all types of conditions. Experienced pilots can often pull off what look like miracles when it comes to safely touching down. The Air Canada flight almost 40 years ago, however, set the standard as the ultimate test of high-pressure stakes where failure was not an option. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. In the spring of 1983, Canada's National Airline acquired four brand new models of the Boeing 767. The new plane came with high-tech upgrades to the electronic engineering systems and instrumentation. Aviation technology was advancing at an incredible pace, and it was an exciting time for commercial air travel. Both the flight and maintenance crews were doing their best to keep up with all the new changes. Training takes time, 
especially with tech that did not previously exist, so mistakes can and did happen. But in the airline industry, even the smallest, most simple error can have potentially devastating consequences. On July 23rd that year, Air Canada Flight 143 was scheduled to fly from Montreal, Quebec to Edmonton, Alberta via Ottawa using one of these recently acquired planes. On the flight that evening were 69 people, including eight crew members. 48-year-old Bob Pearson was the captain, along with his 36-year-old first officer, Maurice Kintel. Both were highly experienced pilots, with countless hours of flight time between them. The flight deck typically included a flight engineer, but with the changes made to the new 767s, there was no longer a need for one. It was shortly after 8 p.m. as Flight 143 flew quietly over Red Lake, Ontario. The shiny new plane was cruising at around 41,000 feet when an alarm suddenly alerted the cockpit that something was wrong. According to the warning, one of the three fuel pumps was experiencing low pressure. The first thought was that it must have been a malfunction with the alarm system. After all, how could one of the pumps possibly be malfunctioning on such a new plane? Before the flight crew had a chance to identify the issue, another fuel pump alarm went off. It too was showing low pressure. According to the flight log, the aircraft had plenty of fuel to complete the 700 miles remaining until they landed. So what was going on? Unfortunately, the digital fuel gauges were not working at the time of the flight, so there was no way to cross-check the information. Captain Bob Pearson and First Officer Maurice Kintel were stumped. There should have been no reason at all that two fuel pumps failed at almost the same time, let alone in a plane that had just gone through rigorous quality testing. Captain Pearson decided the safest course of action was to divert the flight to one of Air Canada's maintenance facilities in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Once there, the pumps could be inspected to see why they were registering low fuel, not even halfway through the flight. Also, the airport was only 120 miles from their current position, making it an ideal spot for a speedy landing. Air traffic control in Winnipeg cleared the plane for landing, and Captain Pearson prepared the 767 for its descent. The approach was looking routine. Then, the alarm for the third fuel pump sounded. The cabin crew were instructed to prepare for an emergency landing, but they had no idea why. Aside from the alarms going off, the aircraft itself was flying smoothly. It was certainly concerning, but nothing the crew hadn't trained for. That's when the left engine failed. There was no question now that the plane was quickly running out of fuel. But they still had one engine, and that would be enough to get them to the landing strip. Incredibly, as bad as it looked, the situation was about to get a whole lot worse. Without warning, the well-lit instrument panel went dark. A moment later, the sound of the remaining engine faded away. With no power at all, the plane was now flying silent. It was still at an altitude of 26,000 feet, but with the loss of both engines, that was not going to last long. 
In aviation, to resolve an emergency situation, the crew would normally follow clear procedures. In this case, however, there was no checklist for flying a 767 in the event of a double-engine failure. Also, with no instruments, the crew may as well have been flying blind. Fortunately, the skies were crystal clear, so visibility was not an issue. Yet, while Captain Pearson may have had thousands of hours of flight experience, like most pilots, he was not trained to land a plane with no instruments, no engines, and no controls. Air traffic control in Winnipeg were monitoring the flight on radar and remained in constant communication with the flight crew. Their calm demeanor, however, was masking the terrible realization that everyone on board Flight 143 would likely not survive. Without the ability to maneuver the 132-ton aircraft due to the loss of power, there was little that could be done. There was one hope of getting a bit of control back, and it was a piece of equipment called the Ram Air Turbine, or RAM for short. This small, propeller-looking device can be lowered from underneath the plane to drive a hydraulic pump. The system is a last resort for providing much-needed power. With the ram now enabled, Captain Pearson did his best to maintain control of the aircraft. The thought of a double-engine failure usually evokes the image of an aircraft dropping out of the sky like a rock. But thanks to the design of the Boeing 767, instead of making a sudden vertical descent, the plane is able to continue flying. Well, more like gliding. Even though the aircraft was rapidly losing altitude, it could essentially be maneuvered much like a glider. Unlike powered flight, gliders are a type of light aircraft that have no engine. They rely completely on the design of the wings to produce enough lift to keep them in the air. Yet, the 767 with 61 passengers and 8 crew on board was no glider. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Inside the cockpit of Flight 143, the situation was getting worse, if that was possible. Without basic information like the speed or rate of descent, it was virtually impossible to calculate whether they would be able to make it to the Winnipeg airport. The limited power supply did not include the vertical speed indicator, which was key to figuring out the glide ratio speed. It was not looking good, as the crew announced to passengers they would need to brace for an emergency landing. The plane was still a terrifying 65 miles from the airport in Winnipeg as it continued its rapid path toward the ground. As the first officer made the calculations, he had little confidence they would be able to make it that far. Like many commercial pilots, the first officer was a former member of the armed forces and years earlier had done some training in the area. 
He knew there was a decommissioned Royal Canadian Air Force base approximately 45 miles away called Station Gimli. It was 20 miles closer, but since it was no longer in operation, there would be no support from air traffic control. It also meant there would be no emergency services available, should there be a rough landing. That was assuming, of course, they could land the plane at all. There was another big problem with landing at Gimli. The former airbase had only one runway. This meant that when it came to lining up the approach, the plane had zero margin for error. With only enough power to make basic maneuvers, despite being closer, the alternative landing site wasn't looking that great. Captain Pearson weighed the two options and decided that Winnipeg, although farther away, was better equipped to deal with any eventuality. As Flight 143 quietly made its way toward Winnipeg Airport, it was starting to look like they were going to make it safely, after all. The runway was only 35 miles away, and thankfully, no other surprises had come up. That was until First Officer Cantell, who had been quietly focused on the calculations, gave Captain Pearson the news he really didn't want to hear. Based on the estimated speed and rate at which the plane was descending, it would crash before making Winnipeg. There was no choice now but to try and make the runway at Gimli. The former Air Force base was only 12 miles away, but with no engines, the course change and accurately lining up the final approach would be stressful, to say the least. Because there was no hydraulic power available, the landing gear could use gravity to extend and lock into position. That was the way they were designed anyway. While the wheels under the belly of the plane deployed with no problems, the landing gear at the nose of the aircraft had not. But the pilots realized they had a far more dangerous issue on their hands than possibly sliding nose-first down the runway. At this point, they weren't worried about making the landing strip, they were concerned about overshooting it altogether. The flaps, which are used to slow an aircraft as it descends, relied on hydraulic power, so could not be used. Also, the plane was descending at around 2,500 feet per minute, which meant it could hit the runway at a dangerous angle. With no mechanical way to slow down, Captain Pearson decided to try something a bit different from commercial airline techniques. The maneuver was known as a side slip, and it was something Pearson had learned flying gliders, one of his favorite pastimes. Executing a side slip move is more terrifying than the name sounds, and using it with a commercial aircraft was unheard of. The first part of the maneuver essentially involves free-falling sideways. This would create a significant amount of drag over the plane, allowing it to descend rapidly without gaining additional speed as it continued to head towards the airfield. The pilot would rely on the tail rudder and ailerons to manipulate the plane's angle. But again, there were no guarantees that performing a side slip on a commercial aircraft would result in a successful landing. If the attempt failed, the plane would decelerate too much and run the risk of dropping to the ground. But Captain Pearson was out of options, and almost out of time. What the flight crew didn't know at the time was that since the base at Gimli had been decommissioned, the airfield had not been abandoned. In fact, as the Boeing 767 barreled closer to the runway, it was filled with crowds of people unaware of the impending emergency landing. 
The base had been converted into a high-speed racetrack, and on that particular day, the Winnipeg Sports Car Club were hosting a drag race. Event coordinators had set up tents along the side of the runway, while cars raced up and down the far end of the airstrip. Other areas were used as parking lots and RV campgrounds. The decommissioned airbase was certainly not abandoned like they expected, and there was nothing they could do about it now. The only hope was that the plane could stop in time, and that would be up to luck more than pilot skill. Like something out of a movie, the large aircraft glided silently toward the start of the runway. While most of the racegoers had no clue what was about to happen, two boys who were riding their bicycles in the direction of the incoming plane were about to get the scare of their lives. The 767 was doing over 200 miles per hour when it touched down on the runway. The nose of the plane smashed down, grinding against the tarmac as it skidded along. The landing gear tires blew out almost immediately, and smoke began to billow as Captain Pearson slammed on the brakes. When the two young bike riders saw the plane getting closer by the second, they turned and pedaled as fast as they could. Halfway down the runway, the plane collided with a guardrail, which was part of the racetrack. The drag created by the guardrail, along with the nose of the plane scraping along the ground, greatly contributed to the aircraft decelerating. It had been a terrifying 17 minutes since the nightmare began, but Flight 143 had finally come to a complete stop. Not far down the runway from where the plane finally came to a rest, the crowd of spectators were in shock. As smoke began filling the cabin, the passengers and crew started evacuating down the escape slides. People from the crowd rushed over to assist, many of them carrying fire extinguishers. Incredibly, none of the passengers on board were seriously injured. Aside from some cuts and scrapes, everyone walked away that day. 24 hours later, Canada's Aviation Safety Bureau began its investigation. Dozens of investigators are trying to figure out what caused yesterday's plane crash. The Air Canada jet skidding on its belly and ripping off its main landing gear and nose cone. But unbelievably, no one was killed and about two dozen people suffered only minor injuries. What had caused the sudden engine failure of an aircraft that had just come off the Boeing production line? When investigators drained the aircraft of its remaining fuel, there was less than 17 gallons left. For a plane that had a holding capacity of over 24,000 gallons, it was worrying, to put it mildly. But there was no evidence of a fuel leak, and the tanks were perfectly intact. With all other mechanical issues checking out, there was really only one possibility left. There simply wasn't enough fuel pumped into the tanks prior to takeoff. That kind of mistake, however, at least in the airline business, was just about unthinkable. But as investigators poured over the calculations done by the ground crew at the Montreal airport, they confirmed it was a simple error. A miscalculation that almost caused one of the deadliest air disasters in Canadian history had it not been for a series of fortunate events. As dangerous a mistake as it was, if you take a step back, it's not difficult to see how it happened. To determine how much fuel was required for the flight, 
A manual calculation was used, which was not out of the ordinary. At the time, however, the formula used by the flight crew on board the aircraft was measured in weight, but the fuel trucks on the ground worked in units of volume. That on its own is not a problem. Before pumping the fuel, technicians would just use a basic conversion formula to make sure their numbers aligned with the flight crews. The issue started with the acquisition of the 767s, which occurred at the same time that the Canadian aviation industry was moving from imperial measurements to the metric system. On the day of the flight, officials found that, for one of the fuel tanks, the figures were converted from volume to kilograms using the metric system. The fuel in the other tank, however, had been converted from volume to pounds using imperial measurements. The investigation reported conclusively that it was human error responsible for the fuel shortage leading to the complete engine failure aboard Flight 143. But there were other contributing factors, including the lack of a flight engineer. The advanced electronics in the Boeing 767 removed the need for the position, so it wasn't clear exactly who was responsible for calculating the fuel loads. The result was that, when it took off, the aircraft only had around half the fuel it needed to get to its destination. Not surprisingly, airlines made immediate changes to better train both flight crews and ground technicians. Following an internal investigation conducted by Air Canada, despite the flight crew's flawless performance in the face of potential catastrophe, they were not without fault. The highly preventable situation was ultimately a failure of all crew members to clearly understand their roles and responsibilities. Captain Pearson was demoted for six months, while First Officer Contell received a two-week suspension. Three members of the ground crew were also suspended following the internal review. In the end, the Aviation Safety Bureau determined that the crews had not been adequately trained to manually calculate metric formulas. Captain Pearson, First Officer Contell, and the ground crew were all cleared by the ASB. Captain Robert Pearson continued to fly for Air Canada until he eventually retired in 1995. First Officer Maurice Kintel was promoted to captain in 1989. Both men have stated that, despite the incredibly close call aboard Flight 143, they will always love flying and have become better pilots for it. Air Canada no longer includes that 767 as part of its fleet, but during its 25 years of service, the plane was given a special nickname. From that fateful day in July 1983, it became known as the Gimli Glider, giving a nod to the out-of-the-box maneuver that saved the lives of everyone on board. The Gimli Glider took its final flight in January 2008, retiring to the so-called aircraft graveyard in the Mojave Desert in California. If you think you can do as well as Captain Pearson, then you're in luck. In June 2017, a museum exhibit opened in Gimli, Manitoba, featuring a flight simulator programmed to recreate the terrifying conditions. If you ever get to test it out, don't be too discouraged. Very few people have been able to successfully land the virtual Boeing 767 during the simulation. Fingers crossed, no pilot ever finds themselves in that situation again. 
production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.